In the winter of 2012, my older brother Oren got a phone call from a close friend of his. He said, listen, I swim with this girl. I don't know her too well, but she's a, a really beautiful swimmer. And you can know, you can know, <laughs> you can know 80% of a person's character from the way they swim. <laughs> so I, I suggest that you meet her. Later that day, Yael, the swimmer, also received a call. Yes, so... My coach called me and he asked me, can I introduce you to some guy? And I said, sure, I would love to. The swimming coach gave Yael my brother's name, and she, of course, began Googling. At some point she came across an old TEDx talk he had given. Her initial reaction? Well, first I thought he's a bit chubby. Cute, definitely (laughs) cute, but uh, just a little bit chubby. But I thought I will give it a chance. They spoke on the phone and set up a date in Tel Aviv. Okay, so Yekes uh, typically come on time, but Iraqi uh, and I'm Iraqi come ahead of time. And I tried really hard not to come early. I thought uh, a man should wait for a woman. And, you know, strategically, I thought it was wrong (laughs) to come ahead of time or early. So... I tried to keep busy and not to be early, but eventually I arrived and Owen wasn't there. I was, again, too early. I thought he should wait for me, but Uh I waited for him. Then I saw him from far away arriving and he had like a light blue shirt and short pants. And you looked very, you were very good looking uh, man. Though the cutest part of your dressing was that uh, you missed a button. You know, it was so cute to see you with this open shirt and Mr. Button and shorts. And, and I thought, wow, what a man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Let's just say it was a pretty unusual date for me, too, because when it ended, we walked towards the boulevard, remember? And, uh, you know, we were about to say goodbye, and suddenly you, you pounced on me and gave me a kiss. Remember? Yeah, it wasn't exactly like it that. Was, it was exactly like that. It was, it was quite a kiss. My brother was super enthusiastic, and they began going out. Everything, at least outwardly, seemed to be promising. But then after about three weeks, I said to Yael, look, I really like you, um, but I, I'm sorry, I really have to think about it a little bit more. Yes, you said that you needed a break. But breaks are the most annoying things in relationships. Like, what's a break? What, do you need half an hour break? Day? Two days? How long of a break do you need? Oren didn't really know what to say. So Yael, she decided for him. She said, don't call me for a month. Yes. (laughs) So Oren and Yael were on some sort of undefined hiatus. He constantly told us, and this was nothing new, That he wasn't sure and didn't know. Anyway, the month-long break was supposed to end or be re-evaluated on his 40th birthday, January 25th. And then on the 20th of January, I met up with my best friend on the boulevard. He said, Oren, your choice has nothing to do with Yael. You have to choose whether you want to continue to be a single guy living in Tel Aviv, having fun, or to become a family man. And... In both routes, you'll have great highs and happinesses and really frustrating lows, but that's a choice you need to make. Oren thought about his friend's advice and then said to himself, Yala, 
על החיים ועל המוות. Sort of the Hebrew equivalent of here goes nothing, or it's now or never. That very evening, I ran to your house on Sokolov Street, number eight. I remember it. I ran and I ran and I ran and ran until I got to your door. And I knock on your door with the thought of saying, come on, let's go for it. But Yael wasn't home. Oren called her cell, and when she picked up, she said that she was visiting a friend in the Golan, that there was almost no cell reception, and that she could barely hear him, so they better just talk properly when she returned, as planned, a few days later on his birthday. The next day, Oren and I went to have dinner with our parents, in Kiryat Yovel in Jerusalem. Now, we all grew up at 53 Shmariau Levine Street, right across the street from number 50, where my dad's parents lived. My grandfather Abe had died many years earlier, when I was in third grade. But my grandmother Zina? She was still alive and kicking, and almost 99. In any event, we all sat down to eat. And suddenly there was a phone call from the other side of the road from Safta's house. It was Melanie, her caretaker. She was hysterical and she said, Come, come, come over. Mr. Harman not feeling well. Oren, my father, and I quickly ran over. We went straight into the den where Safta was sitting in her favorite purple armchair. She was just breathing very heavily. That's my dad, David. She had a small smile on her face, uh, and she gradually breathed less and less heavily as we were standing by her side. We held her hand. And we actually didn't really say anything to each other. No, no, we didn't. I think we all just realized what was happening. At a certain point, she just stopped breathing. Very simply, she just stopped breathing. And with her last breath, a small tear fell down Safta's cheek. What is called in Hebrew a motneshika, a kiss of death. And it was over. That's it. Safta was gone. Now, even though my Safta was so old, we were all pretty stunned by her death. Because there was no preparation or illness or hospitalization. I guess we all just figured she'd go on living forever. Within a few minutes, the Magenda Vidadom paramedics arrived and we had to convince them that there was no need to try and resuscitate my Safta. Then the police showed up, because that's what happens when someone dies at home. And once they left, we were alone, just the family, with Safta. We tried reaching the Chevre Kadisha, the Jewish burial company, so that they could come collect her body. But no one answered the phone, because it was after 11 p.m., and the very next day there were elections to the Knesset. Clearly they just assumed that people would be so eager to vote that no one would even think of dying the night before the elections. Finally, around 2 in the morning, we managed to get a hold of some sleepy officer on duty. He said that they couldn't make it that night, and we should sleep with Safta's corpse and keep her company. Um, and so we covered her body with a sheet, and that's it. We just stayed with her. It was a quiet night. And we all sat there with her, um, and thought about Safta, each one, his own thoughts, his own memories. And we felt that we were there in her last evening. We were all there together. 
We all really felt that we were with her, accompanying her on her last night in her house. Gradually, all the grandchildren brought sleeping bags and blankets and spread them around Safta. It was sort of like the pajama parties we used to have there when we were kids. We all just slept um, next to Safta on the floor. Throughout the night, we talked, laughed, reminisced. It was all really sad. She was our mother. She was everyone's mother. She was the mother of our family. Now, that very night, you might recall, Orin was still in the middle of his ongoing saga with Yael. Sure, there were four more days till his birthday, the scheduled deadline, when they had agreed to talk. But Orin, he couldn't wait. Then Orin called me, and he sounded really sad and miserable, and he told me that uh, his grandma, just, his safta, just died, and that you were all with her uh, through the night. And I knew safta. I've been to one of the Friday night's dinners, and I saw how all the family comes and sit around the table uh, with her. And although she didn't talk, she was the center of the evening. And uh, I knew that it's something really dramatic uh, happened. And I really wanted to be with him. The next day, El showed up and pretty much stayed for the whole Shiva. And before any of us really understood what was going on, Yael had transitioned from being this girl Oren had briefly dated to sort of being a family member. Yael really was with us, almost like a part of the family, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, I don't think, but I guess my heart already knew, and five weeks later we were engaged. Yes, we were on a trip in Amuka, and suddenly he went down on his knee, and he gave me a blade of grass made into a ring, and asked me to marry him. Orin had waited for 40 years to find a bride, but all at once, his patience was up, and everything happened very quickly. We got married in June 2013, and a year later, in June 2014, our daughter was born. Chuchi, what's your name? Saizina. Shaizina? Yeah. Shaizina Harmon? Yeah. And who are you named for? For Shafta Zina. Shai in Hebrew means gift. So little Shaizi was really... A gift from Zina, from Safta Zina. Because we felt that thanks to, in a way, thanks to her death, uh, we got back together and Shaizi was born. And I guess Safta leaving us was sort of our family's beginnings. It was very joyous. Shai Zina, was Safta Zina old? Yeah. How old? Um, this old. Are you showing me with your hands? This old. (laughs) Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be back with a new third season of Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So, as so many of you have pointed out in countless emails, Facebook messages, tweets, and even, believe it or not, physical letters, it's been a long time. A very long time. And we're all simply delighted to reappear in your feeds. We have a really great season ahead of us and can't wait to take you on journeys all over the country and the world. 
in search of that elusive, non-BB, non-startup nation, Israel. Now, before we delve into the stories, we have some exciting news. After two years of bringing stories of regular Israelis, people you'd never otherwise meet, to you, we've decided to bring you to the stories. We're organizing our first ever Israel story trip to Israel. We'll meet some of the unforgettable characters you heard in our episodes. People like Chaya, who adopted all those babies with Down syndrome. Folks we met during our Herzl 48 odyssey. And many of the regular contributors to the show. We'll travel all over the country, hearing tales and hopefully gathering our own new Israel stories. I'll be there for parts of the trip, and so will many of the other Israel Story producers. So mark your calendars. This coming November, you can have the ultimate Israel Story experience. And help support the show. We're working on a website with all the details. But for now, if you want to hear more, just drop us a line at trip at israelstory.org. You know, one of the questions we always ask ourselves is where to start a story. The beginning is always a classic. Various points in the middle have their appeal, and then there's the let's start at the end camp. When we sat down to plan this season, that conversation basically happened again. So, dear friends, I give you our first episode of the season. And in the end. Stories of endings and what comes in their wake. If little Shai Zina was, in a way, the outcome of my Safta Zina's passing, we're now going to meet two other Israelis, whose death, let's just say, triggered unusual activity. You wouldn't be so off if you mistook Shlomo Avni, the hero of our first story, for Charles Darwin or Dumbledore or Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. He has this long, wispy, white beard and a naughty twinkle in his eyes. Shlomo, you'll hear in just a sec, likes to call himself a troublemaker. And, well, you can judge for yourself. See, most of us don't love thinking about our own death, but Shlomo isn't most of us. Act 1, Over My Dead Body. Here's Yochai Meital. You see, death, well, it's just a part of life. We were all born to live, to grow old, to die, and then to nourish the creatures that nourished us our whole lives. In the end, we all have the same simple mission, to die and become nourishment for others. But for some reason, we've decided to disrupt nature. Meet Shlomo. My name is Shlomo Avni. I'm 83 years old. And all I can say is that I'm waiting around to die. To be buried at sea. And with that, let me introduce Shlomo's two children, Noga and Eyal. It all started as a running joke my dad used to tell us. 
See, my brother, Eyal, and I, we both had dogs. I raised two wolf dogs, and uh, my dad told me that after he will die, he wants me to cut his body to pieces, put them in the fridge, and give the dogs to eat his body. My dad had a strange sense of humor, so it was for me another joke. It wasn't a funny joke for me, but it was a joke, a very bad joke. But the thing is, Shlomo wasn't kidding. He was, please excuse the pun, dead serious. Let the dogs benefit from my death. I mean, they love meat, and I am meat, so why should they not eat me? They deserve to. Look, I feel uncomfortable among humans. I'm a troublemaker. I mean, I guess you could say that I'm the bad boy on the block. This is a story about one man who dreamt of returning his body to nature. But that dream came up against a huge wall. A wall called the State of Israel. Shlomo dedicated the last years of his life to climbing over that wall. It began with that running joke of being fed to the dogs. For a long time, nobody in the family took him seriously. Till one day, in the middle of a casual Friday night meal, Shlomo put it in very clear terms. I said, I don't want to end up in a cemetery. I don't want to be buried in the ground. Why? Because burying people in the ground and then covering them up with concrete and cement is like turning the earth into a can of sardines for human bodies. This is blasphemous. It's basically a desecration of the dead, a desecration of life. Shlomo imagined a different ending for himself. He wanted very simply to be laid out in nature where he'd become food for wild animals. I told him, uh, okay, you, you want to bury like that? I'm not going to do all the bureaucracy at the day that you're going to die. I don't want to take care of anything. You'll get the permissions, and if you get them, I will do that. Without missing a beat, Shlomo said, No problem, I'll do that. At the same moment, he went to the computer and started to write uh, the letters. I didn't think there would be any problem. I wrote down a will and requested that when I die, my son be allowed to take my body and throw it in the wild. A few days later, Shlomo stood in line at his local Givatayim post office branch. He licked a couple of stamps and put them on a large manila envelope containing his will. It was addressed to the Apotropus Haklali, the governmental agency that deals with anything related to inheritance and estates. But when they received the unusual request, they quickly returned it to the sender, together with a short explanation, saying that they could not, unfortunately, authorize the will. The reason they gave was simple. It just wasn't legal. So I had no choice. I turned to the courts. Shlomo's petition? To be allowed to carry out my desire to be buried in nature, for the simple reason that I'm the master of my body, Society doesn't have any rights to it. My body is mine. It doesn't belong to the community. So, who does one's corpse really belong to? Thanks to Shlomo, this seemingly absurd question got a lot of attention in Israel. It was debated back and forth between different courts till it ended up, in November of 2009, at the doorstep of Bagatz, Israel's Supreme Court. 
The verdict, at least from Shlomo's perspective, was very disappointing. The Supreme Court told him that he won't be able to be thrown in the nature, in the desert. It's not suitable that someone will walk in the desert and will find his body. The common good is more important than the individual good. In addition to the issue of making sure that random weekend hikers don't stumble upon a rotting corpse, the justices also cited the prophet Jeremiah and Maimonides, stating that, and I quote, Jewish law requires burial, and any other alternative is considered a degradation of human dignity. They claim that my wish offends human dignity. But I said, I am the human. It's my dignity we're talking about here. Let me define what offends my own dignity. But it was too late. They'd already decided. So you might think the story would end here. I mean, the highest court in the land had ruled on the issue. But if there's one thing you can say about Shlomo, it's that he just doesn't give up. He went back home to sit on his uh, drawing table and uh, he had a new idea. I suggested an alternative. Then my son throw my body into the sea. I mean, why not? The sea is deep enough and wide enough to accommodate all the cemeteries in the world. This new petition bounced around the courts for years. The state attorney basically argued that Shlomo's aquatic solution was nothing more than him being a wise-ass that it wasn't substantially different from the idea that had been thrown out by the Supreme Court. They demanded that it be rejected outright. But Shlomo, who insisted on representing himself, fought on. Each time he'd lose a hearing, he'd just appeal to another jurisdiction, over and over again. And as this protracted legal battle went on, it took over Shlomo's life. That, you might imagine, wasn't so simple for his family. When I asked him about it, his gaze turned serious, as if I had touched on a particularly raw nerve. He went all quiet, and then blurted out a single word. An acronym, actually. Zabashem? Loosely translated, that's their fucking problem. When I pushed Lomo on this point, he said that his wife was at peace with his macabre crusade. She understood my point of view. She even accepted it, and so did my children and grandchildren. They all justified me. But Noga, Shlomo's daughter, tells a slightly different tale. When a person fights for a cause, he makes many sacrifices along the way. In my dad's case, it is my mom and us, his kids. All of his spare time is dedicated to this battle, a battle about his death. And it's hard because it confronts us with the idea of him dying long before we need to. I mean, we always have this thought in the back of our minds of what will happen when our parents will pass away. But in our case, it's a daily reality. It's so present. The price that we as a family paid was a very high price, a very heavy one. I won't exaggerate if I said that the family was in the second priority for him. Look, I think that all the rituals surrounding death are completely unnecessary. I kind of despise them, to be honest. And what my dad is doing is essentially forcing us to think about them all the time. I mean, I think we should celebrate life in a big way. But when it comes to death, I'm all for getting it done as quickly and practically as possible. I don't like to think about death, 
אבל אפרנטלי, מי דאד דאז, הוא אוהב את זה מאוד. אני לא מעריכה דון קישוטים. אני לא מעריכה דון קישוטים. אני אפילו חושבת שזה כאילו 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 בוז כלפיהם, מי שקיבל את זה הכי קשה. The person who took it the hardest was my mother. She suffered episodes of severe anxiety and depression. In the middle of it all, Shlomo's wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and her memory quickly began to fade. It's possible that in a way, Alzheimer's sheltered her from this frightening subject. In that sense, at least, she was spared some of the pain. Ultimately, Shlomo's final appeal brought him back to the Supreme Court. And this is when things began to change. In what was somewhat of a surprising reversal, the court acknowledged that there was, in fact, no law that allowed the state to force a person to be buried against his or her will. They knocked the case back down to the district court for further consideration. It wasn't a slam dunk for Shlomo, at least not yet, but it did give him some hope. Yet another set of hearings soon began, and the state, well, they tried out a new line of reasoning. They said that I'm waste, garbage, and that throwing my body into the sea would be tantamount to polluting it. I said, I'm very sorry, I'm not waste, and I'm not filth. The only way you're allowed to throw garbage into the ocean is by obtaining a special permit from the Committee for Discharging Materials to the Sea. So I had no choice. I went to talk to the committee. The committee is made up of ecologists, marine biologists, experts on industrial waste. Usually they get together to discuss chemical spills and large-scale pollution caused by factories or oil tankers. But now, by court order, they convene to debate one single matter. whether Mr. Shlomo Avni from Givatayim was, indeed, trash. At the end of a very long meeting on this weighty matter, they made up their minds. The next day, Shlomo was notified, much to his delight, that he was not garbage. It was a cathartic moment for him. After years and years of fighting what he saw as Israel's absurd burial regulations, he had prevailed. Shlomo had single-handedly created a legal precedent. It now seemed as if the Mediterranean tunas could start drooling in anticipation of the delicious meal that was headed their way. But the main course himself was still worried. And for good reason. Even though I won, and the court said my son can fulfill my wish, I'm afraid that it's still going to be an uphill logistical battle for him when I actually die. Shlomo was right. Shortly after the verdict was handed down, three ultra-Orthodox members of Knesset, horrified by the potential ramifications, introduced a bill that would require the state to bury every Jewish citizen, including Mr. Shlomo Avni. The bill never passed, which of course made Shlomo happy, but his kids knew that this meant that when the day comes, they'd be the ones who would have to deal with the morbid task. I don't know how am I going to... To be in the money time, in the real time, am I going to fall apart? Am I going to be emotional, to, to break because my father just died? Maybe I want to break. I want to be his son, not the producer of the funeral. Shlomo wasn't too worried about all of this. As far as he was concerned, he was ready to go. For the last 30 or 40 years, 
I have lived against my will. I don't bless this life, I curse this life. Those were Shlomo's parting words to us when we first met him nearly three years ago. From time to time we'd check in with him to see how he was doing and each time he'd confirm that he was still very much alive and very much unhappy about it. And then on the 1st of March, 2016, while taking a nap in front of the TV on his favorite armchair, Shlomo Avni died. He was 86 years old. Eyal, his son, was the one who found him. He was sad, of course, as anyone would be, but at least one thought gave him some peace of mind. In terms of the funeral, everything is organized. We had uh, plates with vegetables, trays of fruits, exotic fruits, pastels. You see, anticipating his children's emotional state, Shlomo didn't breathe his last before finalizing all the logistics of his burial at sea. We had uh, filled the grape leaves, filled the cabbage leaves. A pre-signed contract with a boat owner, a detailed guest list. Sandwiches uh, with salmon, cakes, uh, burekas. And of course, also... A lot of alcohol, a lot of beer. My father wanted it to be a celebration. Everything seemed to be in place for Shlomo's much-awaited send-off. But you know how life is sometimes. You make plans, and then some shady boat owner screws you over. The second or the third phone that I've done after my father died was to the owner of the ship. The guy told Eyal that he was very sorry, but he couldn't take them out to sea, since his boat, it didn't have the right kind of license. It had taken Shlomo a long time to find this boat, and Eyal was afraid that now, with his dad's body waiting at the morgue, some silly licensing issue would stop him from fulfilling his final will. So, in a frenzy, he began making phone calls. Hundreds of them. He talked to yacht owners, skippers, fishermen. When that didn't work, he moved on to... Very big ships. Shipping companies. He even contacted a helicopter operator who could maybe drop Shlomo's body into the sea from midair. Nothing panned out. But just like his father, Eyal wasn't about to back down. I'm going to fulfill my father's last wish. I'm not going to give up. And if I will have to, I, I will take chasake. Uh, uh, um, Chasakes are those giant surfboards that Israeli lifeguards have. And I will paddle to the middle of the sea. I will throw his body, but I'll know that i done that thing that was so important for him. I'm not going to give up. Almost out of options, Eyal reached out to Shmulik and Vered a couple who live on a yacht parked in the Tel Aviv marina. They were game, but there was one pressing matter. Shmulik told me that we have only three hours to leave shore. I asked him why, and he said we have a window of opportunity before the storm is going to come. I said to him, Shmulik, it can't be. I can't arrange all the arrangement in three hours. There are so many things to do. It's impossible. But on second thought, Eyal knew that for an Avni, nothing is really ever impossible. That the longer he waited, the more likely it was that some orthodox politician would try to find some loophole or pull some strings that would bring the whole project to a halt. He knew it was now or never. So I said, okay, we have to open a war room. 
Like a skilled commander, Eyal quickly assigned tasks. His sister Noga dealt with all the issues of the permits and the licenses. Two other friends were responsible for getting all the food, drinks, alcohol, etc. A third friend showed up with a big pickup truck to take the cage from Batrefel. The custom-made iron cage, which yet another friend of Eyal's had welded together on his moshav, was meant to help the body sink. But as per Shlomo's explicit instructions, there were large gaps between the bars so that the fish could get in and nibble away. Anyway, after picking up the cage in Bat Hefer, they made a pit stop at the morgue in Benebrak, picked up Shlomo, and hurried to the marina in Tel Aviv. Everything synchronized amazingly. At three o'clock, everyone met by the ship. Everyone met at the boat and pitched in, loading a picnic cooler, or a tray of borekas, or a body onto the deck. And they set sail. All of us stood around the board, a glass of wine or a beer in our hand, and we were telling jokes, and we were telling stories about uh, my dad and his special way of life. It wasn't said. It wasn't said at all. It was a lot of laughing sounds, a lot of jokes. It was so natural. Standing there, celebrating, and his body is lying in between us. It felt so right. At that moment, I knew that my father is very happy. At 22 nautical miles off of Israel's coast, Shmulik, the skipper, silenced the engine. People stopped telling stories or joking around. And the sudden silence was quickly filled by sounds of waves crashing onto the hull. The family and friends on board picked up the iron cage, tipped it over the railing, and then gently let Shlomo slide into the abyss. And as Shlomo's body sunk to its final resting place, they each retreated to a corner of the yacht and sailed back home in silence. Ever since, whenever I go to the beach, I think of Shlomo. I look to the horizon and imagine the Mediterranean tunas and groupers staring bewildered at a sinking iron cage containing an old man with a mischievous smile on his lips. Yochai Meital. Original music by David Peretz. That's him, by the way, singing his Hebrew rendition of an old blues song, Let the Mermaids Flirt With Me, by Mississippi John Hurt. You can find links both to the original song and David's version on our website. Our next piece was originally written as a Facebook post that quickly went viral. It's also a story of a funeral, but a very different kind of funeral. 
There were no burekas and no yachts, no custom-made cages or pending legal proceedings. In fact, there was a real concern that this funeral wouldn't even have people. Ruth Efroni brings us Act Two, the solitary one. Last week, I went to the funeral of a woman I didn't know. I got a text message that morning. It had words like solitary and childless and also Holocaust survivor and three o'clock. So I said, okay, I was going to be in the neighborhood anyway and was curious and I guess I had nothing better to do. As I walked into the Rehovot Cemetery, I wondered if anyone else would show up. But then I saw a large crowd near the monitor at the entrance looking for her name among all the other people being buried there that day. Is this the solitary lady's funeral? Someone asked. So I mouthed that word again, solitary, with what I thought was almost no voice at all. A religious woman, holding a small book of psalms, put her hand on my shoulder. It's okay, she whispered. None of us knew her either. While the rabbi was speaking, I counted us all. 72 people, 72 strangers who came in the middle of the day, in the middle of shopping or working or picking up the kids or having coffee with an old friend. They were tan brown and pale pink, with yarmulkes or without, men and women, some very old, others teenagers with peach fuzz who walked over from school after their teacher had read them that same text message. And then the rabbi, beads of sweat glistening on his temples, asked if there was anyone who could say something about the deceased. Anyone? Anything? No one budged. I almost yelled out, me! You know, just to kill the quiet. But then I heard a murmur coming from the back of the group. One pint-sized woman, maybe four, seven tops, cleared her throat, and the crowd parted to let her pass through. She walked right up to the open grave and stopped. I'll say something, she mumbled, and in a very broken and heavily accented Hebrew, she said, She had degrees, much degrees, and she worked. Forty years she worked. A woman with pale yellow eyelids, standing right next to me, shook her head and muttered under her breath, A shiksa, that's what she is. Then another woman spoke up, waving her closed umbrella against the blue sky. The departed was from Odessa, she began. They didn't have concentration camps in Odessa. They just kill you in the street. But she managed to run away to Israel, and she'd write letters to those who stayed behind. She'd write, come to Israel. I'd like to add something too, a man in shorts and sandals chimed in. The yellow-eyed lady said, oh, finally! as if she'd been waiting for this the whole time. So I asked her who the man was, and she replied, What do you mean? That's Nachmani, that's who. I just nodded silently. Nachmani knelt to the ground and took a lump of dirt from the grave in his fist. He said, softly, that this land was once his grandfather's orange grove. All of this was orange groves, he declared, and then said it was an honor for him that the deceased was now buried in this earth. Amen, he looked up with dry eyes, 
May this land be good to us. May this soil be good to us. Just before people began to scatter, a tall, fidgety woman, a municipal social worker, told the group that the departed refused to accept any help. I'm good on my own, she used to say. Somebody to make you a cup of tea, the tall woman would ask, to bring you a blanket, to help you get out of bed? No, she didn't want any of that. It was a social worker who came up with the idea of sending out the text message. This is an emergency, she had pleaded with the folks at the Rehovot City hotline. This woman has no one, no one but a bunch of strangers who may or may not get this text. The thought of not having a minion at the funeral shattered her. And here you all are, she said, and her voice cracked just a bit. I can't believe you came. The yellow eyelids next to me were full of tears, and so were the tan brown ones and the pale pink ones, and those of the old and the young, the women and the men, the Jews and the Shikses. So for one brief moment, in the middle of the mess that is our lives, we huddled together, and we were close. It is us, the living, more than the dead, who need this grace. And I knew that we were all thinking the same thing, that it was too little and too late, that had we come sooner, one at a time, with a bowl of soup, or a smile, or just a kind word, then maybe she would have been less alone, and maybe we would have had something to say about her at her funeral. So rest in peace, Maya Chernichovsky, the daughter of Ben Zion, for you had a lovely name, many academic degrees, and 40 years of work. You wrote letters to your friends in Odessa, and kindled your solitude like a caveman would kindle his fire. And you gave me a moment of tenderness, a moment of belonging. May your soul be bound in the bond of the odd life in this hard and beloved land. Ruth Efroni is a TV producer, a writer, and somewhat of a social media celebrity. Her first book, a collection of autobiographical essays, is coming out with Kineret's Morabitan later this year. Colin Oldham composed and performed original music for that piece. So that's it, our first episode of the season. Or, as Winston Churchill said in 1942, Ah, this is not the end. Uh, it is not even the beginning of the end. Uh, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. <laughs> you can hear all our previous episodes, two full seasons worth of them, on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes or any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, you might recall that at the end of every single episode last year, we mentioned that we were looking for a sponsor. Well, guess what? We're still looking for a sponsor. We have a wonderful audience, people just like you, who are all interested in and engaged with Israel. So, if you want to support our show and reach what has become a lot, a lot of people, email us at sponsor at prx.org. 
Before we go, a quick note to say that we're about to come to the States for yet another live show tour. In just a couple of weeks, actually. It's a great show, full of amazing stories, gorgeous live music, and stunning visuals. So folks in Pittsburgh, New York City, Indianapolis, Seattle, Miami, don't miss it. Check our website or newsletter for more details. There were many folks who worked hard on this episode. Thank you to Daphna Kron, Itai Mountner, Nomi Fortis, and all our friends at the Jerusalem Season of Culture. To the one and only Julie Subrin for her amazing editorial advice. To Sela Weisblum for mixing the show. And to Shira Z. Carmel of the Hazelnuts, Dana Harmon, Federica Sasso, Kobi Farhi, and Wayne Hoffman. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Israel Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roi Gilron, Maya Kosover, and Rachel Fisher. Zev Levi and Dima Perevoshikov are our wonderful production interns. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. So till then, yalla bye. Shai Zina. Some people may be listening to you right now. And if they are, what do you want to ask them for? For vanilla. Vanilla what? Vanilla cake. Would you like to ask for anything else? Yeah. What? For a car. What kind of car? Um, yellow. Yellow car? And purple. Okay, so if anyone hears this, please give Shaizina vanilla cake and the yellow and purple car. Yeah. And a chocolate cake. Oh, a chocolate cake too? Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Shaizina. Thank you, Missy. Bye. Oh, no, no.
שחולפת, זה עודכם 